Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. In our latest policy update, Democrat Brian McKean and Republican Elizabeth Mayer join policy director Drew Littman for a bipartisan discussion on what will be accomplished legislatively before the end of the 115th Congress and the impact of the upcoming elections. They discuss if key legislation, including appropriations funding, the farm bill, tax extenders, and a possible bipartisan immigration deal will pass the finish line before January. This close to the midterms, political campaign messaging is getting more heated. Our team delves into what is working for both Democrats and Republicans and how that messaging may affect outcomes. Welcome to another Brownstein podcast. I'm Drew Littman, Policy Director at Brownstein, and I'm joined by Elizabeth Mayer, Policy Director and former Legislative Director to Senator John Kyle, and Brian McKean, Senior Policy Advisor and former Chief of Staff and Legislative Director for Senator Gene Shaheen. Let's get right into it. Elizabeth, I'll direct my first question to you, and then Brian can have a rebuttal if he wants. Pending the results on Election Day, what can we realistically expect Congress to accomplish in the impending lame duck session? Well, I'll I'll speak more from the Republican perspective, but um, part of it depends on how the election goes. If by some chance Republicans keep the House, which I know is very unlikely, and the Senate, I think that the issue with the funding of the government will become – uh, less problematic. Uh, I think that both um, Majority Leader McConnell and uh, McCarthy, as well as the rank and file, have coalesced around a five billion dollar number for the border wall. E- even though F- five billion, five billion. Yeah. Kevin McCarthy did introduce a, a twenty nine billion dollar bill, but the Majority Leader and uh, McCarthy have both said in, in passing that they would support the five billion. Right. It remains to be seen whether the president would accept five billion or not. But if Republicans keep both chambers. Uh, then I believe that the funding will get plussed up and there's a greater likelihood that they'll get um, CJS, Homeland Security. Commerce, state justice. Commerce, justice, science. science. Commerce, justice, state was the old, um, and I I say that all the time. I'm a fossil. Um, (laughs) No, no, that was, it was that for a long time. And then Homeland Security, and I think the third one's state foreign ops. That there's a greater likelihood that that appropriations package will get done. Mm-hmm. Now, if Democrats take the House, Pelosi has said that she will not allow any increase in border funding uh, f- funding for the border wall. I don't know if she's just being political, trying to keep her base happy, or if it's real. But if that is the case and it's split House and Senate, um, then funding for the next fiscal year for those three bills becomes more problematic, and the likelihood that a government shutdown could occur becomes greater, or a continuing resolution keeping funding at a static level um, into the next year also becomes more likely. It sounds like you don't visualize a government shutdown, which is always what's lurking in the background. Well, Senator McConnell has said numerous times, as recently as just a few days ago, that he believes it's highly unlikely there will be a government shutdown. The wild card here is Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump, um, and really this impending fight over the wall. Brian, you have the same view? or Yeah, I, I don't um, disagree with anything Elizabeth just said. I think you know, if Democrats do take the House on the immigration issue, on funding the border wall, you know, the Congress was very, very close to a deal on these issues 
um, earlier this Congress, um, taking care of Dreamers, mm-hmm. more additional funding towards border security. And I think it's important to note that it's not just funding for building a wall. Right. In many cases on our southern border, a wall exists already. Um, some of it is double fenced. Um and I think Democrats, uh, generally speaking, and a lot, of, a lot of those in the Senate have have are on record as voting for strong border security measures. So I think there's there's outlines of a deal here on immigration that could come together if the House does flip. And and, and I think there is uh, a debate going on in the House Democratic Caucus right now and at the leadership level about how they approach all of this sort of stuff that's still on the table, mm-hmm. still on the plate for the remainder of, of this 115th Congress. You know, does it make more sense to clear the decks, so to speak, with some of these issues that have um, that are left over that that they know they will have to deal with at some point? And is it better to do it this Congress, go along with, um, you know, the likelihood of, of a desire for deal cutting as we get closer to the holidays, which is, you both know, um, tends to happen um, here in Washington, or is it better to hold some of these items until the next Congress? So things like the farm bill, is it better to take a deal now uh, and and put a conference report forward mm-hmm. that can get um, you know bipartisan votes uh, in both the House and the Senate? And Brian, you have such experience with some of those ag issues as well. Um, you you agree, right? That it the ag bill is more of a regional region to region. It's not as much a partisan issue if you eliminate the food stamp aspect of sure. it. And so maybe, you know, maybe there is a, a chance for a pass for a path right. forward. Right. Well, let me introduce one other variable. There's an unusually high number of retirements in the current among members of the current House. I think there are something like 55 members today who are not actually running for reelection. They've created open seats. They're either retiring or they're running for another office or just moving on to some other job. It seems to me that all of those retirees who now have to come back, probably not thrilled to be coming back after Election Day just to preside over this, will be more interested in making a deal perhaps than they might be otherwise. So that includes... 40, something like 42 Republican House members, retiring House members, who might, would, well, let me ask you, would they be quicker to go along with the deal because they really want to get out? I would think the answer to that is yes. Um, I think a lot of that is human nature. I, I think, you know, in addition to the, the, you know, the numbers that you just threw out, what we don't know is how many... Of, how many incumbents will lose? Incumbents will lose. And a lot of those are moderate Republicans who are right. more prone to be on the deal-making side of things anyway. So on a big legacy issue like immigration, for example, which we just yeah. talked about, you know, are, are, do you have um, losing incumbents from California, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York, um, who are more moderate on these issues than a lot of their more conservative colleagues, willing to say, let's make something happen here. Uh, you know, folks from a Tuesday group who who could be uh, not coming back next Congress wanting to say, let's take care of something that I can tell my grandchildren I help mm-hmm. take care of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there are too many years um, to uh, forget as someone who worked in the Senate for as long as Brian and I both did that there are those years where the Congress is in session until Christmas Eve. And so you can make a cut at playing devil's advocate for no matter what happens about how long they'll stay in. One other priority for Republicans has been to get um, to introduce a new bill is sort of a miscellaneous tax bill 
across the finish line before the end of the year, then that would include extenders. Um, in a conversation I had with some senior staff yesterday, these are Republican staff. They don't they're, they aren't optimistic mm-hmm. that um, no matter what happens, um, that an extenders package and a miscellaneous tax correction bill will get through. Having said that, people always feel like that about the extenders bills. And then somehow, three days before they go out of session, they end up passing. I, I Just to add to that, in my notes here, I, I have the tax technical corrections as something that you know, could get done in the lame duck. I, I think it goes back to, to a point I made just a couple minutes ago about whether or not Democrats, if they take control of the House, are in the mode of, we need to clear all of the decks here. And there are a number of, you know, glitches, mistakes, problems, call them what you will, technical corrections to the tax law. And there, I think there is a bipartisan recognition on a number of those, number of those provisions to fix them. And, and that is something that... I personally think it would be smart for the Democrats to move those now and not have to deal with them in the next Congress. And the most um, prominent among them um, is the qualified improvements um, deduction or what many people call the restaurant depreciation. And it also applies to real estate that both Republicans and Senate and Democrats in the Senate have now declared their support for fixing because it was a complete oversight and mistake they thought that uh, the bill achieved one thing, and it turns out that it didn't. So that's one item um, that hopefully will uh, get some uh, uh, additional traction. So that's the kind of thing that typically gets fixed in a, in a civil-type lame duck. It's non-controversial, and it's not terribly partisan. Now, um, I don't know if I'm taking us in a more partisan direction, but let's look at this 115th Congress from a different angle, a retrospective angle. I'd like each of you to offer up what you think was the biggest accomplishment of the 115th Congress, or, or if it didn't have any accomplishments, <laughs> feel free to say, and what was the biggest missed opportunity? And if you don't think there was a missed opportunity, just say so. But Elizabeth, you want to go first? Sure. Um, in brief, I would say um, that the number of nominations, particularly judges, but mm-hmm. nominations as a whole, that um, Republicans, despite a requirement to go through a 60-vote procedural process, have gotten through. I would say the number of appropriations bills um, that is unprecedented in this period of time that have gotten through. And I would also say the tax bill as well is uh, considered to be a major uh, accomplishment on, on the Republican side of things. And one more item to add would be the opioid legislation that um, had a signing ceremony uh, recently um, was also you know, a very big and very bipartisan accomplishment. Any missed opportunities? Uh, look, I think that there were other ideas and issues and bills that were bipartisan in approach or could have been, but in this very partisan environment, weren't even sort of brought forward mm-hmm. and and considered for final mm-hmm. passage. Mm-hmm. Brian, your thoughts, uh, biggest accomplishment, missed opportunity? You know, biggest accomplishment, I mean, I, I can't disagree with Elizabeth's note um, on judicial nominations, in particular, you know, changing of the uh, the cloture rule relative to Supreme Court justices, um, whether or not that deteriorates the institution of the Senate is is something for the historians to consider. Mm-hmm. But as mm-hmm. far as being able to move through judges 
rule changes were done by Democrats when we had control and uh, President Obama was in the Oval Office. But the fact that these rule changes carried over into this Congress and they were able to start from zero and ramp up to, you know, 100 miles an hour very quickly on on the pace of confirmations is going to be a lasting um, accomplishment for, you know, a, mm-hmm. a, a lasting conservative judiciary. Um, you know, I think immigration is a miss, was a missed opportunity. You know, we mentioned it before. There was a deal on the table. Um, partisans in the White House, based on reports, uh, were, were you know forced the president to walk away from um, what uh, uh, folks on both sides of the aisle, in both House and Senate, who are the leaders on this issue, have spent you know majority of their careers working on it. Cut a pretty pretty middle of the road deal. Um, then to have the White House kind of turn its back on right. it at the last minute, um, that's kind of gotten been forgotten, L- and the problem's not gone away. L- listeners might recall that this was the uh, what became the celebrated affair of President Trump meeting with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi in the White House. It was almost more the atmospherics of the meeting than, than the substance of the deal, from what I can see, um, because he got such heavy pushback, I think, that he was not anticipating just on— cutting any deal with them from my point from my point of view I, w- I would also add gun safety is a, another really missed opportunity given all of the uh, terrible incidents that have happened over the last two years in this country not to mention everything that's happened prior to that you know I, I always thought that it was going to take a Republican president and a Republican mm-hmm. Congress mm-hmm. to move something on Nixon background to China, checks. basically. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I think there was a real opportunity there in some sort of a s- similar situation in a big Oval Office meeting with leaders on both sides. And the president said he was um, supportive of, of policy proposals yep. that 80 and 90 percent of, of Americans are supportive of. And then they turned their back on it. Um, and, and the legislative momentum never really even got started on it. And that's such a huge missed opportunity for this country. Okay, let me drill in on a specific policy issue. Republicans voted to repeal the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, which would have meant repealing the requirement that insurers offer policies to customers with pre-existing health conditions. Democrats in the midterms are running heavily on health care, and now Republicans who oppose the Affordable Care Act, who voted to repeal it, are claiming that they want to protect consumers with pre-existing conditions. Does this mean that a Republican Congress, if Republicans keep the House and Senate, will allow the Affordable Care Act to remain intact? Or have the Republicans boxed them in, in a sense, to, to taking a position now to, to a point where they cannot repeal the Affordable Care Act? Uh, I'll take a crack at uh, quickly answering that. Uh, I believe if the if Republicans keep the House and the Senate, I, I don't believe a an ACA repeal would ever get through the Senate. Mm, interesting. I, I just don't. I do think that uh, just like smart health staff have been trying to do for years on the Republican side, or as we speak, trying to continue to figure out what to keep from the ACA and what to throw out. Mm -hmm. And pre-existing conditions um, is something that, by and large, I would say 85 to 90 percent of Republicans want to keep. Right. It's difficult for candidates running for office. They're, in a way, caught in a catch-22 because they've voted to repeal and replace so many times. And there have been a few repeal and replaces that maybe didn't protect pre-existing conditions adequately. 
And so on the campaign trail, they're getting a hard time about it. Um, but most most Republicans um, want to maintain that protection. We'll see. So isn't the tricky thing there, though, that everyone agrees that insurers should have to cover people with pre-existing conditions? You should be able to get health insurance, even if you have a pre-existing health condition. But that means insurers have to cover a lot of unprofitable patients. And and the question really is, and this is where healthcare reform starts to get complicated, we can all agree on that on that aspiration, but how do you finance it without bankrupting the insurers? Isn't that where the disagreement lies? I'm not I'm not suggesting we're gonna solve it in no, this podcast, no. uh, but I'm just saying in terms well, of the complexity. You're you're exactly right. I mean, we were all in and around the government um, when the ACA was passed and this is a puzzle that all the pieces had to fit together in the right way in order to make happen. And Drew, you're exactly right. You pull, well, maybe puzzle's the wrong analogy, but the Jenga, the Jenga <laughs> puzzle, the Jenga game, you pull the wrong block out at the wrong time and the whole thing collapses. Right. And you see what the administration is doing, uh, their, their rulemaking on the so-called skinny plans, the, the really cheap um, healthcare plans that don't cover anything. Um, you know, there was a Congressional Review Act vote in the Senate a couple of weeks ago on that from Senator Baldwin, who wanted to repeal that that rule because those plans are they're called skinny plans. I think that's a, a fair characterization. Yeah. They're off, also called junk plans because they don't really cover anything. And that failed. Um, Republicans uh, all voted against it. Um, and maybe one or two um, voted for the uh, the Baldwin resolution. But are you know have Republicans boxed themselves in on? ACA repeal? I don't think so at all. I, I think I, I do think they will continue to try to repeal the bill. I think they will, if they hold, uh, hold control next Congress, they will do things like this skinny plan, junk plan proposal stuff that kind of chips away at the ACA. Um, and maybe they put that into their legislation and they say they're they're covering pre-existing conditions. But to your point, if the insurance companies aren't doing it, then it's not happening. Um, if the government's not mandating that they do it, right. are, are insurance companies going to no. do it? Yeah, not to drill down too much because um, we have other issues to talk about. But um, I think that the, uh, the the skinny plans and pre-existing conditions are two separate issues. And I do th- agree with Brian that it's kind of like a Jenga, some of it. I, I get it. But you can maintain pre-existing coverage preservation and not get rid of what the Trump administration has done uh, with respect to allowing for the offering of some of these skinnier plans that might help some younger people, for example, who might not get insurance coverage at all and might be subject to the penalty, get insurance. So at least it would get them on a path to maintaining some semblance of coverage um, that otherwise they might just not try to get. Yeah, I I would just add to that that you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens in a couple of weeks in the election. You've got a lot of Democrats that are running campaigns against Republican incumbents relative to their votes to repeal and replace Like Obamacare. McCaskill, right, Brian? Right. And then you've also got a lot of Democrats who are going to come to Congress next year that are running on Medicare for All. So how does that all kind of fit into the conversations that we're having uh, relative to health care. Is the Democratic Party going to continue to go left on this issue? Are voters going to go with them? So, um, so on if that I note? could summarize for Democrats and Republicans, we're going to get suddenly get a lot of uh, data 
on the salience of these health care issues for voters. And, and rather than speculate or look at polls, we'll be able to see actual results from the field because we know the races where this has been advertised more or less heavily. So, so we'll have a clearer idea of how well voters understand this and what they care about. Let me, let me ask a related question. Um, some people feel that the most likely bipartisan legislation uh, next year, if Democrats take control of the House, for example, is infrastructure. But don't we run into a similar problem with infrastructure where everybody wants it, but the question is how to pay for it because it's awfully expensive. Any thoughts on that? I have a quick thought. I mean, I believe uh, that they're not to harken back to what Trent Lott used to always say when he was the majority leader in that there has to be a sweet spot for some issues. Um, but I think that that maybe there is a potential for a sweet spot. It's not going to be just, you know, loan guarantees and it's not going to be as large a package as maybe some Democratic offices want. But I believe I read just a few days ago um, that Reed Cordish, who was a senior advisor in the White House and is now back in the private sector, has called together in some ways on behalf of the president this very large group to have a sit-down planning meeting about how to move forward with an infrastructure package. Mm -hmm. So I think there really is still a desire to do it. But again, just as most issues... Uh, become, um, how to pay for it is one item, um, and finding sort of the middle for how to move forward is the other. Yeah, if I were Nancy Pelosi or House Democratic leadership, um, I, I, I think there are a couple of easy ways to pay for it. You uh, repeal some provisions of the tax law from last year, especially on uh, the wealthiest Americans and corporations, um, and you pay for it that way, and you, you dare Republicans to vote no. Um, you you take the tenets and proposals that the White House has put out, uh, its principles on it, on infrastructure, you put that into a legislative package and you pay for it um, by repealing some of the tax law. Which Thank you, Brian, for mentioning that, because that, that leads to another, I think, broader question. Can we expect a lot of Democratic proposals next year, expensive proposals, to be funded to be or the cost to be offset by repealing provisions of the job creation tax cut act. Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, we've we've entered this sort of bizarro world where the Congress had to pay for everything for uh, eight years when there's a Democrat in the White House, and then uh, when a Republican was in the White House, we all of a sudden didn't have to mm. pay for um, uh, tax reform. So I think it it is a uh, Noteworthy uh, rhetorical point, political point to take some of these ideas and and roll back some of the tax law uh, by using them as pay fors. If 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 we're now back into an era where we have to pay for everything and we can't deficit spend um, and increase the debt, um, you know, even though you could make the argument that you know infrastructure investment returns more to the economy than a tax cut does, right. um, and there are plenty of economists that have made that point. If we're going to have to pay for things, let's do so by repealing parts of the tax law. Okay. Let me take us now in a slightly different direction on the policy questions. The tax cut uh, that that Republicans passed doesn't seem to be helping in elections, in campaigns. Maybe it isn't select areas, but they're not they're not touting it very broadly. And they could claim, I think, that that the president didn't let them get that out there as a message. He, he stepped on the message one time too many. Is there a substantive issue, policy issue, potential legislative issue 
that is working for Republicans in their campaigns. Democrats are running on health care, running maybe belatedly on the Affordable Care Act, or running on repealing the tax cut legislation. What are Republicans running on legislatively? And maybe they're not running on something, and maybe they shouldn't be. Maybe it's more salient to run on character issues or personality or experience or other issues. Thoughts? Uh, I do have uh, some brief thoughts. I, I would say, one... They're trying to run on the tax bill. You know, we all look at Twitter and Paul Ryan and McCarthy and a lot of Republicans' um, Twitter feeds are all about the tax bill. I don't think that the success of it is caught up yet with a lot of people uh, because they haven't done their taxes yet. So there could be that. Maybe the tax cuts that people are looking at um, experiencing they don't think is enough. And maybe that's why Donald Trump has recently said that he's going to introduce a further 10% tax cut for middle income folks. We'll see. I mean, I, I don't know how that is going to happen. I would say that what they also are running on is, um, and it's in a way a gift from Democrats, I hate to say it, but sometimes uh, a lot of the critique in some ways of the administration is in, is backfiring a bit. Broad critique, you mean anti-Trump rhetoric? Is yeah, that what you mean? And, and I think that, um, you know, whatever you think about Kavanaugh and his guilt or innocence or, or, or whatever, I think that the, the fact that those folks um, went up to the Supreme Court and, and knocking on the door was one thing, uh, right? where the guards were, but to climb all over it and to climb on top of um, Lady Justice is something that, like, in some ways, middle America, I believe, recoils from, and it just goes a step too far, whereas some people, especially women, might be on the same page uh, wanting women to be respected and to have the truth come out if they're not really sure and then they see uh, what they see as very far left kind of irresponsible actions it kind of reverberates for them and they go back to their safe space and they vote Republican so if I can summarize you're making a prediction that Democrats in a sense or some Democrats overplayed antipathy toward Kavanaugh in a way that would alienate voters that are gettable for Democrats. Is that accurate? I'm not sure they overplayed antipathy toward Kavanaugh, but being seen as part of the very far left um, like activity doesn't work for Democrats running. It makes people a bit uh, irritated, and they they just go back to their comfort zone. If but you're they speaking were, as a Republican. I'm speaking as a Republican. Right. Back to uh, a sort of a Republican safe space. That's a prediction about how voters will behave. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one thing I'd like to add, uh, uh, unmoderating myself for a minute, is I don't think that the tax bill, whether properly messaged or not, will gain the Republicans any seats in Congress. I think that a provision of the tax bill limiting state and local tax deductions, which seems to be targeted very specifically at blue states, will cost Republicans uh, seats in Congress. I looked at the top 10, I just used Motley Fool online, looked at the top 10 state and local tax burden states. Those states, if my memory serves, 
gave 144 electoral votes to Hillary Clinton and one to Donald Trump because Maine splits. One Republican senator and 19 Democrats. But they have something like 21 Republican-held House seats that are either in the toss-up or leans R or leans D category with some more in the likely categories. In other words, just from those 10 states, Democrats could get just about all the seats they need to flip. And you're talking about suburban districts, higher incomes, which is where bites because it's a cap, the kind of people who tend to vote and the kind of districts where Republicans are in danger really of losing the House. So I think I understand why it made sense politically from the president's point of view and even from a Senate point of view. Uh, Susan Collins is the only senator from one of those states. Uh, I'm not sure those House delegations, blue states tend to be large. So even though Republicans are vastly outnumbered in California, there's still a lot of Republicans in that House district. California, New York, New Jersey, they're all in that uh, top 10, and there are a lot of vulnerable seats there. Thank you for indulging me as I unmoderated <laughs> myself. Let's, let's shift and talk about personality and dynamics. You're both creatures of the Senate. I'm going to go out on a limb and predict that Mitt Romney will pull out his very first Senate race, even though he's new at this, right, in Utah. And in a chamber that's lost dealmakers and, and senators of stature, namely uh, the late lamented Senator McCain, of course, uh, Senator Hatch, Cochran, Corker, Flake, th those are the five losses since Jeff Sessions. Uh, no losses on the Democratic side. Does Mitt Romney now have the opportunity to take on an outsized role, especially because those senators are gone? And does he have the instincts and temperament to thrive as a, as a bridge builder? I think back to the fact that he was governor of Massachusetts. I mean, I understand why he distanced himself from Massachusetts in his presidential campaign, but he has experience, a lot of experience working with Democrats, a heck of a lot. Thoughts on that? Uh, quickly, I, I think it remains to be seen. And I think he did work on a very bipartisan basis when he was the governor, but um, he's now going to be coming from a very different uh, state with a very different very red. set of priorities. I think it if he's uh, hoping to be in office for one term, then you know maybe he can forge ahead and sort of emerge as the bipartisan uh, sort of deal maker um, or conscience part of the conscience of of the of the Senate of, of Republicans in a way who are much much more in the middle. Uh, but I think it it really just remains. To be seen. Very conservative state, as you said. On the other hand, Romney has almost no political risk at all. I mean, he's going to be unbeatable yeah, as long as he's I, there. I was going to make the same point about whether or not Romney you know, decides this is a one-term, six-year type of, of deal for him. I, I, I'm not recalling how, how old he is, but does he want to serve here for 12 years or is, is six yeah. years going to be enough? And I think a lot of it, at least in, in the first two years of his term, is is going to come down to whether he cares what President Trump thinks about him or mm -hmm. not. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he famously you know, disavowed his can uh, Trump's candidacy and then, you know, went hat in hand um, to Trump Tower and had dinner with him um, and was dangled secretary of state. Right. right, um, right. And then um, not given the job. Um, in in some might say in an embarrassing fashion. Um, so does does he care if the president calls him a name on Twitter or not, um, or does he care to be a statesman in in, in the vein of, of the late John McCain? Um, or, or Senator Hatch, you know, Hatch and Kennedy were close collaborators on a lot of bills. They found uh, quite a lot of, of common ground, at least back in the day. And it was Romney who actually 
enacted or signed into law a health care plan that was yeah. the basis More for the Affordable Care Act. Obamacare, indeed. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, Senators Hatch and Kennedy worked on a number of health uh, issues together right, right. as uh, on, on uh, members the of the, committee. the yeah. now HELP Committee. But uh, I, I agree with Brian. It just it remains to be seen what, what path he wants to forge ahead. And it also remains to be seen, you know, he's, I think, being careful right now He's campaigning for other people. He was in Arizona campaigning for Martha McSally. And this, is asked, Romney. this is yeah. Romney recently and asked directly about Trump. He he soft peddled his answer and wasn't critical of Trump. He wasn't critical because right. he's trying to help Martha McSally. On the other hand, let's look back at what happened uh, to Senator Hatch. I believe two times over, he was challenged very far to the right. And survived, but he pivoted to the right. So, so we'll see. Yeah, and and the only other thing I'll add on Romney is it'll be interesting to see one what the split is in the Senate, Republican versus Democrat, and does his vote, you know, become a swing vote? And two, what committees does does he want right. to sit on? You know, I think it's been reported that he's interested in the Foreign Relations Committee. You know, international affairs are are a place where uh, I think the United States has a vacuum of leadership, mm-hmm. um, and senators can play mm-hmm. an important role. Used to play an important role uh, in in foreign policy. Um, you know, going back to uh, uh, the institution of the Foreign Relations Committee itself, um, and there, there there's there's a niche there, a lane there for someone who is willing to take on uh, his own party. Uh, in foreign affairs. You've both stood off the floor of the Senate chamber and seen the reporters gathered sometimes behind a rope, how they'll chase after selected. Usually they're all chasing the same senator because there's one senator who's just said something or has some decisive role and they chase the senator in a pack. Can you picture Romney being the most chased senator? I I think reporters are just going to be very eager for his comments on just about, they're just going to chase the heck out of him. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I'm thinking back fondly to walking through the the maze of reporters on my way back from the floor. I, I think you're right. I think uh, Romney will give a good quote, and that's um, oftentimes as important as um, your stature in the Senate, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and they and a lot of times will not know how he's going to vote, and he will therefore become not maybe as often as Susan Collins or Murkowski. But that's why they chase McCain. But right, sure. That's, That's why, why they, they yeah. right because he gave a good quote and he, he, he often provided, times voted against copy his own party and, and he could be unpredictable in voting. Okay, exit question: When you two political professionals are glued to your respective televisions and computer screens on election day, what's the number one thing that each of you is watching for? What will you consider a successful result on the morning after? Elizabeth Mayer, go. Oh boy, I'm first. Uh, Gosh, uh, narrowly keeping the House uh, and gaining seats, maybe going to 55 in the Senate. I know that isn't necessarily realistic, but more than one person has cited that number to me. And oh, it's quite possible. There is a path forward potentially for it. I agree with that. Yeah, the math is really tough on the Senate side. There's no doubt about that. Uh, I'm going to be looking for um, a couple of uh, races um, that I, I think – if Democrats win, it's going to be a big night. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are East Coast races. Mm-hmm. Um, I look at the Dave Bratt seat in Virginia. Um, that is a winnable seat um, for Democrats. Uh, if that flips, you know, in the early time frame of 8 p.m., 8.30, 
uh, on Tuesday night, then I think a lot of races as we move west through the time zones are going to flip. Right. I- interestingly, for people who are watching at home, you have a lot of flippable seats right on the east coast. So those races are going to, you're going to, those races most of them will be called fairly early for the benefit of television viewers. Then then not much activity till you really get to the heart of the Midwest. And then in the Midwest, the four states that, that Donald Trump flipped in the presidential campaign, um, uh, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, each state has a governor's race and a Senate race. So that, uh, what I'm telling people is, if you're just going to watch TV for a half hour, catch the, that Midwest poll closing. Trump almost flipped Minnesota. That has a governor's race, open seat, and two Senate races. Trump's not on the ballot, so it's not entirely a test of his strength. But in terms of what the possibilities are for either party in 2020, I think we're going to get some interesting information. Well, thank you very much for playing today. Um, I'm sure our listeners are going to get a great deal out of hearing what you guys think is happening in Congress and politically. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farbershreck podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.